Good evening, brother. Good to see you all out, as I always say. Always encouraged by your presence. Also, those who are online, uh, we're glad that you're watching too and wherever you're at. Well, I've been working on this message for about a week and a half, thinking I might sometime this summer bring it to you, but the Lord had different ideas. So we'll do it on short notice because our brother and sister Dave and Laura, as you know, have contracted that COVID virus again. That's, I just, we need to really pray for them. They need a break. So keep them in prayers. Also, Covey on so much needed vacation and, and a wedding, so pray for him and a safe return. So here we are. Now I must confess this message is not entirely mine, but parts of it from a message I heard at Hillsborough Family Camp uh, circa 1983, maybe Lee might remember. But before we begin on the subject of the Lordship of Jesus, I'd just like to, uh, I said to Josh privately how much I enjoyed his message, but I'd just like to publicly say, great message, brother, great message. May we take it to heart. Yeah, I was thinking about Devin and Jimmy and Nathaniel, and we're really blessed to have such young men that are willing to come up here and, and preach. It's not easy, believe me, not easy. I was telling Lee that, uh, well, his dad, as you know, was a great preacher here too, but I didn't like him for one reason. When I was first a Christian, at the end of the service, he would always point, pick out somebody to pray. And being a new Christian, I used to sit in the back row and I'd hide behind somebody. So this is not easy, but you know, it's for the Lord and you get used to it. It's fun, actually ends up being fun to do. So Jesus is Lord. That's the confession of the apostolic church. Romans 10:9 ought to get our attention, if nothing else does on this subject. Paul writes that if you confess with your mouth, and he's writing to Christians. He's writing to us, not alien sinners. It says in an amplified translation, if you continue to confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and continue to believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you shall be saved. Which says, if it says nothing else, that the confession Jesus is Lord has something to do with our salvation. There's a liberal scholar, Bousset, back in the early 19th century, he wrote a book called Lord Christ, Curios Christoph, in which he offered a thesis that the idea that Jesus is Lord was a, was a late idea, that it was adopted under the, by the church under the influence of the Hellenistic community, but that's false. Acts 2, 36, the first gospel sermon, Peter declared, let all the house of Israel know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified. The idea that Jesus is Lord was announced on the first day of the church. You may not be aware, but the church here for many years, uh, we, we uh, supported a lot of Bible colleges. But since over the years, we have back, kind of backed off a lot of our support. And I don't, I think Northeast Ohio is the only one that we support. But uh, 
One reason is that they were invaded by liberal scholars in, uh, in our, and we just could not support them any longer because of their doctrine. I remember one time there was a preacher here. He, he was here for a revival. We knew him well. We heard him speak at Hillsboro Family Camp. Lee probably might guess his name. And uh, he became president of one of the colleges that we supported. And we found out some things that they were doing that we weren't happy with. I know one of the elders called him up to discuss it, and he gave us an answer. He said, mind your own business. So, of course, we quit supporting that one and said over the years we just quit supporting them all. <clears throat> For instance, a textbook that was published by Standard Publishing that was to be used as a theological test text for our colleges had this preface in it. The Christian faith is not an affirmation of doctrine, but a confession that Jesus is Lord. Did you get that? Christian faith is not an affirmation of doctrine, but a confession that Jesus is Lord. Now, brethren, that's false. The Christian faith is the doctrine that Jesus is Lord. And many are saying Jesus is Lord and saying it very loudly are those in our brotherhood who want to join with denominations. And of course, one of the many problems with that is the doctrine of the new birth. The fellow who wrote the preface of that textbook that said the Christian faith, not a matter of doctrine, but an affirmation that Jesus is Lord. And if we read where he's going with that and others like him, they're trying to separate the doctrine of the lordship of Jesus from the doctrine of the new birth, saying we can join with anyone who says Jesus is Lord. So we should be suspicious of that. Some want to make the idea that Jesus is Lord a private creed. Some a personal statement of faith not to be questioned by anyone else. Some make the statement Jesus is Lord part of a modern shallow Teary sentimentalism, prominent in the gospel music industry today. Now, as Dave always says, brother, if you're watching, my proposition is that the statement, Jesus is Lord, is not an emotional experience distinct from doctrine. It's not a private creed. It's not the irreducible minimum for Christian unity. And it's not the title of a top 10 gospel hit. My proposition is that the Lordship of Jesus is the comprehensive statement of the Christian system. It embraces the doctrines that make us up New Testament Christianity. Jesus is Lord. That confession is a sword of judgment as well as a torch of hope. So what we want to do tonight is survey the doctrine of the Lordship of Jesus as it appears in Scripture and its effect on the past and its continuing effect today. The statement that Jesus is Lord is a sword that cuts and slashes and it kills and purges. The confession that Jesus is Lord is not up in the castle with the choir, it's down in the trenches with the warriors down there with us. Thickest part of the battle where every second can mean life or death. It's like the doctrine of light. People today think that Jesus is the light of the world in the sense he's all sweetness and light. 
When the Bible says Jesus is the light of the world, not saying he is all sweetness and light. Instead, John says it is like light shining in the darkness, and the darkness apprehended it not, and the darkness doesn't like the light because light contradicts darkness. And Jesus is not simply Lord in some mild, neutral, or positive affirmation. He is Lord for us as we gather here tonight, isn't he? Because we are believers, the biblical doctrine of Jesus as Lord is light shining in the darkness. <clears throat> the first thing we want to say tonight is the statement of Jesus as Lord, the statement that is the confession of the apostolic church is a final contradicting attack on Jewish nationalistic religion and temple-centered Jewish imperial religion. If you recall the Jews looking for the Messiah to come, they were looking for him to come to build an empire. And they didn't expect the Jews that we got. Right after his prologue, the gospel writer John quotes John 1.23, John the Baptist, who, when he says, I am one crying in the wilderness, make straight the way of whom? The Lord. And he's quoting Isaiah 40, chapter 40, verse 3. What did that mean to those who heard him? John the Baptist, as Jesus did, preached to the first century Jews. And we know from Jewish traditions, <clears throat> the Pharisees protected the divine name Yahweh by not pronouncing it at all. And they substituted in its place Adonijah, Lord. It didn't say the name of God, they said Lord. And the King James Version preserves this tradition. Every time we see an old King James Version in the Old Testament, Lord is always in caps. And you're not looking at Adjaniah, Lord. You're looking at the personal name for God. What we want to say is the very word Lord to the Jews meant God. In the Aramaic where it was spoken, they had a word Mare, my Lord. In the Qumran text from the Dead Sea area showed before Christ, the word Mare was used for God. Second century AD translation of the Septuagint translated Curios, Lord, following the Jewish precedent. What does this all say? In the first century, Yahweh or Jehovah, as it's mistranslated, Hebrew, Adonijah, Lord. Aramaic, Mari, Lord. Greek, Kurios, Lord. In Hebrew, Aramaic and Greek, all three which were used by the Jews in the first century. When John the Baptist said Jesus was Lord, he was announcing that he was the God of Israel. And the Jews got the message. They knew what he meant. We read in John 5:18, therefore the Jews sought all the more to kill him, because he not only broke the Sabbath, but also said that God was his father making himself equal with God. <clears throat> they got the message and they hated the church for it when the church was established. If any of us, we realize that many Jews, many Jewish Christians, when they confessed that Jesus was Lord, cost them everything they had. Their families disowned them. They were beaten out of the synagogues. Few were killed. A whole lot different than singing in the worship service, isn't it? 
You see, Jesus is Lord. That statement, that confession, contradicts Jewish nationalistic expectations of a Jewish world empire. I tell you, that view that put Jesus on the cross, that view is still alive today, and it's in the church. But we want to affirm tonight that Jesus is Lord. The church is the kingdom, excuse me, not some unprophesied mystery. The church is not some pre preliminary, it's the main event. These are the last days, not the next of the last days. And we must reject the misguided calls of look to Jerusalem. We recall what Jesus said about Jerusalem to the woman at the well. She said, who's right, the Jews or the Samaritans? And Jesus said, well, the Jews are right as a matter of fact. You should worship in Jerusalem, but the day is coming when you shall worship where? Neither in this mountain, Gerizim, nor in Jerusalem. Matthew 23, 37, you all remember, Jesus was weeping over the city. He said, oh, Jerusalem, Jerusalem, the one who kills the prophets and stone those who are sent to her. How often I wanted to gather your children under my wings like a chicken gathers her chicks under their wings. But you, were not, you would not. See, your house is left to you desolate. You see, the reason the Jews rejected Jesus was when he said he was Lord and the church said he was Lord, they were rejecting Jewish national materialistic and imperial hope that Jerusalem would be the center, the capital city of a Jewish world empire. And the apostles would know nothing about this. Look to the Middle East. Instead, we read in Hebrews 12, 22 and 23, that we have come to the heavenly Jerusalem, which is what? The church of the firstborn. You see the confession Jesus is Lord contradicts Jerusalem so far as Jerusalem represents a Jewish nationalistic and materialistic expectation of a physical kingdom. Jesus didn't take the easy way. He took the hard way. He didn't come to be earthly intimidating Lord then and when he comes back. He's not going to do it again. Why? Well, it's an easy thing to rule the body. A hard thing to rule the heart. Did you ever notice that during his public ministry, he touched men who were dead, probably made them alive, touched the blind, made them see, touched the deaf, made them hear, touched lepers and made them clean. Did you ever read of him touching an evil man and making him good? No. You know why? Because he couldn't. You can't bring about a moral change by miraculous process. When it came to evil men, he could only persuade. And he's still doing it today. That's what the gospel is. And when he comes back, what's he going to do? He said he is going to destroy those that would not that he should rule over them. You see, that was the very issue that Jesus fought out with the Jews of the first century. What kind of kingdom is it going to be? And the affirmation that Jesus is Lord over that kind of kingdom set the church against Jewish national religion. And we read in the book of Acts, the persecution of the church by the Jewish community. In 1897, Queen Victoria of England had her jubilee. It was an orgy of self-congratulation 
at the 50th anniversary of the British Empire, where a small island nation of white people ruled over a whole world of non-white people. It was said that it was the great empire upon which the sun never set. And they came from all over the world, parades and pageantry for days. And when it was over and everybody went home, Rudyard Kipling, who was a non-believer, but he had sense enough to see what was going on, wrote the words of his famous recessional when the party was over. The tumult and the shouting dies, the captains and the kings depart, still stands the ancient sacrifice, a humble and contrite heart. And Jesus is Lord over the hardest kingdom to rule, the human heart. And the church, hear this, is the kingdom of the heart. Jesus has never been interested in a kingdom of the flesh. Just as that statement, Jesus is the Lord, contradicted Jerusalem, and you know what we mean by that, Paul in 1 Corinthians 8, 4 through 6, discussing the problem that occurred in the Corinthian church by those former pagans who were eating in temples, and you all know about that. In the process of dealing with that, he writes, Therefore, concerning the eating of things offered to idols, we know that an idol is nothing in the world, and that there is no God but one. For even if there are so-called gods, whether in heaven or on earth, as there are many gods and many lords, yet for, that, for us there is one God, the Father of whom are all things, and we for him, and one Lord Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we live. Did you hear what he said? There are many lords in the world, but we know there is only one Lord. Jesus is our Lord. When he said many lords, he was referring to many religions that existed in that day. Ancient Hellenistic religions, ancient mystery religions. When the early church made the confession Jesus is Lord, not only contradicted Jerusalem, it contradicted the ancient religions which were centuries old. And the statement, Jesus is Lord, is a final contradicting attack on these ancient Oriental and Hellenistic religions. In Syria and Egypt, these came from the east to the west. There were many gods, and they were called lords. And popular religions of the day were the mystery religions. Mithras, whom the Romans loved, and Serapis, and Isis, and Osiris, you've probably heard some of these. These were lords, that's what they called them. That's what Paul was writing to, he said, when there were the world's full of lords. These were lords who promised immortality. They weren't men who achieved victory over death and had gone on to immortality. If you got on with them and joined their religion, then you had immortality. Interestingly enough, the fountainhead of these religions came from Antioch of Syria. In fact, the old Roman statesman in the first century, he didn't like the fact that the old Roman religion was being abandoned and these other religions were, were coming in, said, the Orentes is flowing into the Tiber. See, the Orient, Orentes River flowed from Antioch, and of course the Tiber flowed through Rome. He meant was out of Antioch coming all these ideas that were replacing the ancient religions of Rome. It's significant when we remember what city Paul 
used as his headquarters and what city was used as a springboard for missions in the Mediterranean world? Antioch. So Antioch represented to the Roman mind these ancient lords as they made their way through Antioch to Rome. You see these pagan religionists, when the, whom the church put out of business, by the way, they didn't care if the church declared Jesus as Lord, as long as they didn't claim he was the only Lord. When Paul wrote this in 1 Corinthians 8, he was writing fighting words. He said, there are many words, but there's really only one Lord. See, what was the church called then? It was called the way, the way, the emphasis on the. And there was a reason for that. Ancient religions called themselves a way. There are many ways to God. Sounds familiar, doesn't it? And they said, our Lord is one of the Lord's and our way is one of the ways. But the church offended them deeply by saying, oh no, there's only one way, and Jesus is the way, and we the church representing him, we are what? The way. And Jesus is the Lord, and that's what they didn't like, this exclusivism. But it's true, isn't it? Jesus isn't simply Lord, he is the Lord. Jesus isn't simply the Lord, he is the only Lord, as Paul wrote. Arnold Toynbee in his book, Civilization on Trial, written in 1948, said this, now who are the individuals who are the greatest benefactor of the generations of mankind? I should say Confucius, Lhotse, the Buddha, the prophets of Israel and Judah, Zoroaster, Jesus, Mohammed, and Socrates. Jesus is just one of the boys, you know, kind of sings in the choir. But that won't hold, you know why? Only Jesus worked miracles. Only Jesus spoke on his own unquestioned authority. Only Jesus claimed equality with God. And only Jesus died a redemptive death. The others just died. Only Jesus promised to rise from the dead and did so. The rest of them just rotted. Jesus did what the others could do, couldn't do. He, he was unique. C.S. Lewis wrote in Mere Christianity that a man who was merely a man and said the things that Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He'd be a lunatic on the level of a man who said he was a poached egg or he was the devil of hell. You must make your choice. Either this man was and is the son of God or else a madman or something worse. You can shut him up for his fool, spit on him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. Let's not come with any patronizing nonsense about him. Being a great human teacher, he has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Jesus is Lord today. And this is the great and good news. Excuse me. And this is the great and good news and why the church put the pagans out of business. Jesus is the only Lord that did what the pagan lords could only promise. He really brought immortality to light. He really rose from the dead. Jesus as Lord, just as he fulfilled the messianic hope of Israel, he fulfilled the hope of immortality for the pagans. 
and he did so by ridiculing and silencing ancient culture, deep paganism, and a lot of fancy temples and monuments to absurdity, and their fires were put out. When the apostles announced Jesus rose from the dead, and we have seen him. So that was the issue with the pagans. The Jews were primarily concerned with having a Jewish world empire, and the pagans were primarily concerned with life after death. And the doctrine that Jesus is Lord meant one thing to one and another thing to the other. Now it's important for us to understand the pagan concern for life after death. And we can see their concern through the literature of that time. One source comes from Hesiod's The Theogony, which shows us this ancient concept of life after death, or the place of the dead. Now this goes back to the 8th century BC, and, and we will summarize its teaching this way. Hades, Tartarus, New Testament picks up these words and uses them. The abode of the dead. There, dark earth and gloomy Tartarus, barren sea and starry sky. All have their roots in Tartarus's edges, side by side in order. It is a dismal, gloomy region, which even the gods abhor. A yawning gulf that not even after the completion of a full year will a man entering the gates reach the floor. He'll be cruelly tossed this way and that way by storm after storm. A mystery which terrified the gods. Even the gods were at the mercy of death. There stands dark night's grim house wrapped in leaden clouds. Lord Zeus himself was afraid of dark night's children, sleep and death. Mysterious gods in themselves. They never show themselves to the sun. Death has a heart of iron and its innermost soul is as pitiless as bronze. And when he lays his hands on a man, he keeps him. Even the gods hate him. Did you hear the mention of the gates? See, this is an ancient metaphor. Not the place, but the principle that death was thought of as a great fortress. And when you were an inn, you were there forever. And it continues. There at the front of Hades stands the hound of hell. And this dog, this pitiless monster, has a cruel trick. He greets you when you enter with friendly tail and ear, wags his tail. Come on in, he says. But he never lets them leave again. And this concept of death is this dreadful, dark, desolate place, fort prison fortress guarded by the hound of hell is the background of the metaphorical language of Jesus in chapter 16 when he said, Matthew chapter 16, he said, upon this rock I will build my church and the gates of death will never prevail against it. Jesus picks up this metaphor again in Revelation chapter 1 as he identifies himself in his glorious form to the revelator in verse 18. I am he who lives and was dead. Behold, I am alive forever, and I have the keys of death and the grave. Again, not a place, but a principle. Jesus was put in this dread prison fortress that Lord Zeus himself feared. And Jesus went in when he died on a cross, and Satan, that dread doorkeeper, said, Well, brother, when you're here, you're here for life. And Jesus said, No, I'm leaving. And when he left, he did two things. One I know, 
and the other's a guess. The first thing he did was he took the keys. Took the keys. And the second thing, just a guess, he kicked the dog. Now, after hearing all this dread of death and about all these lords that Paul refers to in the Corinthian letter, you couldn't go anywhere in Corinthian, Corinth without seeing a lord's house. But they're all dead, and Jesus is alive, and the dread was over, and the, and the pagans became Christians by the thousands. Why? Because, as Paul said so beautifully in 2 Timothy 1.10, referring to our Savior Jesus, who abolished death. Listen to this. He brought life and immortality to light through the gospel. You see, Calvary gave what Antioch could only promise. And the confession of the apostolic church that Jesus is Lord confirmed that. It contradicted Jerusalem and it contradicted Antioch. But that's not all. The confession that Jesus is Lord is a final contradicting attack on Rome, on Roman state paganism. We read in 1 Corinthians 12, 3, Therefore I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed, and no one can say Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. Who would say Jesus is accursed? You see, this was a very early reference to the oath of allegiance that probably involved some local manner, matter, but it became a very important matter later on. You see, many Christians, hundreds of Christians, thousands of Christians from late in the first century to the year 323 gave their life for the confession that Jesus was Lord. Why? Because we know that ancient Rome was kept together by a political myth. And this political myth was stated in the proposition that Caesar was Lord. Why? Because to hold the empire together, they had to promote the idea that the man on the throne represented the gods, that Rome was the city of God and the throne of, throne of Rome was the throne of heaven. And by the way, this is the background of the great conflict talked about in the book of Revelation, Revelation 19, 11 through 16. We read about this great confrontation between, between the gospel, which brought life and immortality to light, and pagan Rome. Now I saw a heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he who sat on him was called faithful and true. And in righteousness he judges and makes war. His eyes were like a flame of fire, and on his head were many crowns. He had a name written that none knew except himself. He was clothed with a robe dipped in blood, and his name is called the Word of God. No doubt about who that is. And the armies in heaven, clothed in fine linen, white and clean, followed him on white horses. Now out of his mouth goes a sharp sword that with it he should strike the nations. And he himself will rule them with a rod of iron. And he himself treads the winepress of the fierceness and the wrath of Almighty God. And he has on his robe and on his thigh a name written. What is it? King of kings and Lord of lords. And the confession of the church that Jesus was his Lord was the great battleground between the church and Roman state paganism. 
You see, Rome hated the church because they knew if the idea that Jesus was Lord got spread around enough, the Roman Empire would fall. And that's exactly what happened. I would point out that they're gone and we are here, which means the book of Revelation is true. We've won. Lords, he's awful Lord, Caesar's Lord. We read in Pliny's letter to Trajan, Pliny was a proconsul of Rome and he took over as governor of Bithynia in 112 AD. And as governor, he had to be a judge and the first group to come before him were a bunch of Christians. People had accused some of being Christians and he didn't know what to do. So he wrote back to the emperor Trajan, how do you handle these Christians? Trajan wrote back, as for this, those who said they weren't and never had been Christians, see if you had an enemy back in those days, it just accused you of being Christian. And many were falsely accused. Now for those who said they weren't Christians, I thought it right to let them go since they recited a prayer to the gods at my dictation, made supplication with incense to the emperor's statue, which I had brought in, and with the images of God, and moreover, they cursed Christ. What did Paul say? No man speaking by the Spirit is going to curse, say, saying Jesus is accursed. And they cursed Christ things which so it said, those who are really Christians cannot be made to do. Caesar's Lord, some of these lords were a pitiful bunch. If you ever have studied anything about the Roman Empire or read stories about them, a pitiful bunch. Domitian, one of the great persecutors of the church, demanded that he be called Dominusa Deus Noster our Lord and God. Imagine a man demanding that. Early on, the idea with the Remper was an ordinary man. He became a god after he died. So many of them were being poisoned by Russians, mushrooms that the Roman wags were calling mushrooms the food of the gods. Eat them and become one. Vespasian, who started the siege of Jerusalem, was getting sick one day and said, I think I'm becoming a god. We read the figure of the beast in the book of Revelation. This political lord, Caesar's lord, is referred to as the beast. And no wonder. We read about Tiberius and his terrible purges. Not a day, however, passed without, not a day, however, holy, passed without an execution. Exquisite tortures were visited on these people. The bodies of all executed persons were flung down the stairs of mourning into the Tiber with hooks, as many as 20 a day, including women and children. You all know that Rome was built on seven hills, and from the top of the Capitoline Hill, there were stairs that went down to the Tiber River. And they would take Christians out to these stairs and kill them by strangulation or sword and leave them there for several days. During that time, the dogs and birds would eat them, or the Roman citizens would abuse their corpses. Then they would use hooks to catch the bodies and fling them into the river. Caesar's Lord? What kind of Lord is that? No wonder the church grew so fast. Tiberius killed a man who had been a friend for life, 
a man called Sejanus. And when they killed a man politically, they killed the whole family. Tacitus, a Roman historian, tells Sejanus had a six-year-old daughter, and they rounded her up with the rest and put them in a cart to be taken out and executed. And the little daughter of Sejanus knew she was to be killed, but didn't know why. said, please tell me what I did wrong, and I'll never do it again. Tiberius is Lord. The satire was written about him that said, you cruel monster, I'd be surprised I will if even your own mother loved you still. Agrippina, the mother of Nero, married Claudius, had him adopt Nero so he could become emperor, and she poisoned him. We read about Caligula. He committed incest with each of his three sisters in turn with his wife looking on. He made parents attend the execution of their own sons. He never kissed the neck of his mistress or his wife, and he had a lot of both, without saying this, and this beautiful throat will be cut whenever I please. It's a great date, Donna. Caligula, Caligula is Lord. Nero fasted from morning till midnight as he floated down the Tiber. He seduced young boys, forced noble women to solicit his business as prostitutes. He married a young boy named Sporus, and the joke went around Rome. What did his father had married such a wife? You can think about that. Nero committed incest with his mother Agrippina, who had poisoned Claudius. Then he had her killed. He had her poisoned three times. She took the antidote three times. He rigged the ceiling of her bedroom to fall on her, and she came out alive. Then he rigged a collapsible boat to drown her, and she was a great swimmer. Finally, he just had her stabbed. To the Romans, that was the worst crime you could commit, killing your own parents. Think about those lords, Caesar, Tiberius, Caligula, Nero, yet Christians who would say Jesus is Lord and refused to say Caesar is Lord, and they knew they had to say it publicly, were put to death of us. Kind of makes us appreciate the good confession, doesn't it? And they died horribly, just horribly. In contrast to these incestuous, depraved, unspeakably evil lords, we have a man like Nate Milton who wrote of Jesus, that glorious form, that light insufferable, and that far-beaming blaze of majesty. That far-beaming blaze of majesty. That's Jesus as Lord. Jesus is Lord, no private affirmation of a personal faith, whatever that is, but the public death song of thousands of our brethren who lived in the early centuries. So that great confession, Jesus is Lord, contradicted Jerusalem, contradicted Antioch, and set the church at war with Rome. Then the last thing we want to say tonight is just as it's true of Jerusalem, Antioch and Rome, Jesus is Lord. That great confession is a final contradicting attack on the modern spirit of freedom, represented by what Harry Co Harvey Cox called the secular city. The secular city. By that, he was declaring that God is dead and man is free, and the modern church is bought into the spirit of freedom. 
Hear me. If Jesus is Lord, what does that make us? One of the most astounding things is the idea that we can say Jesus is Lord is something that gets us off the hook from obeying him in all things pertaining to the new birth or any other part of the Christian system. It's just the opposite, brethren. If he's Lord, we're servants. His authority is exercised through his word. Remember what Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do, do not what I say, not do what I say. If you notice today, we have a loosening of his authority. If you read the literature of the restoration movement even, you find that the inerrant word is only a trustworthy word these days. The Bible is the word of God has softened nothing but a witness to the word of God. The New Testament isn't a pattern anymore, it's just a norm. And obedience has melted to taking the Bible seriously and judgment is just good-natured finger-wagging. And most don't even want to hear about hell. Jesus is Lord. He is Lord, according to the book of Philippians, based on what he has already done. It says he went to the cross because he suffered this death. God highly exalted him and gave him the name above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, or it's appropriate that every knee bow and confess that Jesus is Lord. Hear me, the lordship of Jesus is not based on what life is about to, on what he is about to do. If you're waiting till Jesus comes back to declare him Lord, I declare you are already too late. God has already exalted him and already made him Lord. He already has all authority in heaven and earth. It's not the second coming that makes him Lord. It was the cross and the empty tomb. We serve him out of love for what he has already done, not for what he is about to do. He is Lord now. Jesus is Lord. It contradicts Jerusalem, Antioch, Rome, and the secular city that we live in. Jesus is Lord, the outstanding miracle of the ages, literature's loftiest ideal, philosophy's highest personality, criticism's thorniest problem, theology's fundamental doctrine, Jesus personally, socially, politically, the supreme center of human interest today. In him, the silence of God breaks into full voice. Jesus is Lord for what Christ did, God ever does. What, what Christ is through all space, through all times, through all people. Jesus is Lord. In the Middle East, there's some magnificent Roman ruins that are in Jerash in the country of Jordan. And if you get time, you can see them on the internet and some of them are still functional. As one brother ended his message, he talked about visiting these ruins, and he said, every time he scuffed his way across the rubble of dead kingdoms, he thought of the cross. And he reminded us of a sonnet written by the poet Shelley in which he wrote about an archaeological find where they found the legs of an ancient Mideastern king and his head lying nearby in the dirt. I met a traveler from an antique land who said, two vast and trunkless legs of stone stand in the desert, 
Near them on the sand, half sunk, a shattered visage, a face, lies, whose frown and wrinkled lips and sneer of cold command tell that its sculptor well those passions read, which yet survived. Stamped in these lifeless things, the hand that mocked them and the heart that fed, and on the pedestal these words appear. My name is Ozio Mendes, King of Kings. Look on my works, you mighty and despair. But nothing else remains. And round that decay of that colossal wreck, boundless and bare, the lone and level sand stretches away. After finishing his reading of this sonnet, he said as he stood at Jerosh, he thought of John Bowring's great hymn. In the cross of Christ thy glory, towering o'er the wrecks of time, all the light of sacred story gathers around its head sublime. And when the lords of modern paganism have been buried with the lords of ancient paganism in the dust of, dust, dust of time, when the secular city joins Jerusalem, Antioch, and Rome in broken oblivion, Jesus of Nazareth will still be Lord. If you want Jesus to be your Lord, then you need to become a Christian. Jesus, our Lord, invites you to come to him. Jesus said, if you believe not that I am he, the Son of God, you will die in your sins. He said also that you need to repent or perish. He said you need to confess him before men, and he would confess you before his Father. And he said, he who believes and is baptized shall be saved. This is the new birth. You want to be reborn according to the word of God? Come forward as it's time as we sing our song of invitation.